Just know it's right after Judges, towards the beginning. While you're going there, I want to tell you about a guy named Andy Wiersma. Andy was the youth pastor at Marshall Evangelical Free Church in Marshall, Minnesota, right before I was the youth pastor at Marshall Evangelical Free Church in Marshall, Minnesota. But before that, he was a four-year Division II basketball player, um, and he's right here. This is Andy, um, and he was a walk-on and set records, was a great basketball player, but more than that, he was an influential leader, not only on the team, but throughout campus, led many people to come to know Jesus, and was very influential in all spheres of life. Someone said about him, he's a friend of guys who like to party, a friend of spiritual people, a friend of kids, and a friend of senior adults. He was everybody's friend. Very influential guy. So influential that E-Free Church gave him the youth pastor job uh, after he graduated from college. He didn't go to college for ministry, but God was using him in that capacity. Um, so they hired him to do that job. There was a tragic accident, bus accident, where a couple students died. And one of those students, their brother, was severely injured. And Andy went and visited him every day in the hospital and then went weekly to visit with him, encourage him, pray with him, and just be a friend to him. He led missions trips, he mentored students, um, and did amazing things for Jesus. Um, my, my senior pastor there, <coughs> excuse me, Pastor Don, said this, Andy has a way of reaching out to people and drawing out what is best and most beautiful inside of them. Less than a year into the job, Andy died in a van accident with a bunch of college students. Everyone else lived. Andy died. I never got to meet Andy. The youth, the college students, the whole community was shocked and absolutely devastated. He was 26. He was in his prime. Gone. Why? We'll never know entirely, at least until we can ask Jesus. But here's some reasons I do know why it happened. At his funeral, a guy who played on the basketball team with him came to know Jesus. And he'd been trying to share the gospel with him, get him to come to know Jesus for years. And it was just hard-hearted. No, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Came to know Jesus at Andy's funeral. And he's now a pastor. Why else did it happen? Well, I know that I wouldn't have been there as a youth pastor for six years. They took a gamble on me right out of college. So who knows if anyone else would have taken a gamble on me, right? <clears throat> At that point in time, and I most likely would not be standing here today if all of this wouldn't have happened. Steve Estes said this, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And that is what the book of Ruth is all about. So let's look at Let's look at Ruth. And while you're, while you're there, if you're not there already, right in verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. Okay, let's just stop right there. In the day when the judges ruled. This is a time in the nation of Israel when things were just chaos. Okay, Israel, God's people, was totally rebellious. And we see that. If you just flip a page back in 2125, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The very last verse of Judges. Chaos. 
God's chosen people were rebellious, but God was still at work. And what's crazy is we see in Ruth is that, is that he's at work in and through a Gentile, non-Israelite nation. Okay, God is displaying his grace to reach all nations. Okay, and as we learn, this nation, Moab, that we're going to talk about in depth today and in the coming weeks, this nation ends up that Ruth, who is a Moabitess, ends up being in the line of Jesus. So God's hand is at work in incredible ways in the midst of chaos. God's heart for every tribe, every tongue, every nation isn't just a New Testament thing. It's actually peppered throughout the whole Old Testament. And here's one of the opportunities we get to see that God loves everyone and anyone from any tribe, any tongue, any nation, any skin color. So I just want to pause for a second, take, take a moment and say, you know what? What happened in Charlottesville was a tragedy and it's not God's heart. God's heart is for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I heard someone say this this past week, heaven will be a white supremacist hell. It will. Because every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be there. That's God's heart. So let's look at God's hand in this story. And we're going to start this morning from the perspective of Naomi. Okay, and then next week we'll look through the perspective of Ruth. And the last week we'll look through the perspective of Boaz. And this, is, this book is probably better entitled Naomi. We're going to see this morning most of the book centers around Naomi. It begins and ends with Naomi. So let's start in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Here's all the tragedy that goes on in Naomi's life. First, there's famine in Judah. Okay, They've got nothing to eat. Then they moved to a pagan, idolatrous nation of Moab. Okay, they worshipped idols, they worshipped golden images, they wanted nothing to do with God. They moved there. Okay, that is a tragedy. Because they're all about following God. They're Israelites. They're God's chosen people. And then, on top of that, her husband dies. And if that wasn't enough, her sons then go and marry foreign wives in verse 4. Okay, they weren't living the set-apart life from the pagan nations that God called them to. Instead, they were just joining with them. And then, the son's wives can't have any kids, we see in verse 5. They're barren. And maybe this is an act of God's judgment because they married foreign wives. We don't know. Um, and I'd just like to say as well, not all barrenness or not being able to have kids is judgment from God necessarily. Okay? I know many in here, including Heather and I, have gone through that, and that was not an act of judgment from God. I'm, I'm 
convinced of that, and that's probably not the case in your circumstance either, but sometimes God does that. Sometimes God comes in when we're just deliberately being sinful, and it looks like in this situation, they are deliberately being sinful and just going, yeah, whatever, we're here. We're going to get married to these wives. And, and God told them very clearly in the law, don't do that. And so they do it anyway. And then we see in verse 5, her sons die. Tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Why? Because God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become their husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts from me, parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So where is God's hand in all of this? All this tragedy, verses 1 through 5. Where is God's hand at work? Well, First, I wanted to just point out that Naomi acknowledges that God's hand is all over this. Okay? Naomi has some messed up theology. Okay? And she deals with this pretty poorly. But she does get one thing right. She acknowledges that God's hand is all over this. Look at verse 13. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Here's what Naomi understands. She understands and accepts that God's hand is in everything, including all the tragedy she just went through. And then, verses 20 and 21, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord 
has brought me back empty? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She acknowledges four times that God's hand is in all of this. She's got a deep, unwavering understanding of God's sovereign hand in everything. She's not just like, hmm, you know, God might have been part of this stuff that happened. No, she, she attributes it to God. It says God is the one actively doing these things. God is the one actively at work in this situation. But Naomi's response to God's hand at work is wrong. It's bitterness. Bitterness. And bitterness could probably be defined as grace blinders. So you can't see anything good that God's doing. And uh, so grace blinders, kind of like horse blinders. So if you're into horse racing, which I'm not, but if you happen to be, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So they put these on the horses so that they only see right in front of them and don't get distracted by horses on the right or left, and they just concentrate on running really fast. So that's a really positive thing. But in Naomi's case, it's a really negative thing because all she can see is herself. Because of all the tragedy, all the hard things, all she's doing is just looking inward at herself. And she's bitter. She's bitter at God. If Naomi was to write a journal entry at this point, I think it would go something like this. Life sucks. First, a famine forces my family to move to a God-forsaken Moab so we can simply eat. Then the love of my life dies. Then my sons both marry foreign wives and they can't have kids. My whole family line is going to crumble and die off. And the worst part about it is that God has done all of this to me. He took away everything from me and I hate him for it. Life sucks. I think if we were to see a really raw journal entry from Naomi, I think it'd be something like that, except maybe even a little more colorful. Bitterness made her blind to a lot of things. The first thing it made her blind to was the effects of sinful people. Because remember, this is during the time of the judges. People are being really stupid. And this was allowed by God. But what's what's great is this famine comes, right? And they have a choice. Am I going to trust God or am I not going to trust God? And they don't trust God and they leave. it's probably safe to assume that their decision to go Moab was sinful distrust of God. So they're, they're just like, you know what? Naomi's like, God is doing this to me and I don't care that it's the effects of other people's sin. At the very least, she's like that. She's probably just like, yeah, whatever. God's just doing this. I'm bitter. When really, she didn't look around her and see, whoa, things are chaotic. We actually deserve this. We actually deserve a lot of this. Bitterness made her blind to the sin going on around her. Bitterness also made her blind to anything good that God was doing. She saw God's hand in her life more like a throat punch. Okay, now that's, that, I love that term because five years ago that was a really cool youth term and now I've heard adults in our church use it and try to sound cool. And uh, so anyway, side note. But it's like, Naomi sees God's hand as like a throat punch instead of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And what's true about a shepherd? A a shepherd has a staff, okay? And sometimes when the sheep are getting out of line, they'll whack them. Why? To get them to go in the right direction. 
Why? Because they actually really love and care for that sheep. Okay? Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they do what? They comfort me. David is saying that that, that, that little whack, that, that sting of pain is actually meant to bring comfort because it's bringing us in the right direction. It's guiding us. Sometimes it's painful, but it's always for us. Even when, when they made mistakes, like going off to Moab, he's still their shepherd. But John Piper says this, when we have decided that God's against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness and we become so bitter, we can't see the rays of light peeping out around the clouds. The problem is that Naomi sees God's sovereignty without seeing his grace. Now in Genesis, there's a story about a man named Joseph. Maybe a lot of you are familiar with him. Joseph's response to God's hand at work is a great example. Naomi's example is horrible. Okay, Joseph has similar circumstances. There's a famine in the land, right? Um, He loses his family. He loses touch with them. His family thinks he's dead even. He's taken to a foreign land. His brothers sell him into slavery. A lot of parallels here with Joseph and Naomi. But Joseph's response is the opposite of Naomi. He trusts God. He obeys God. He sees God's grace. Why? Because he understood what he said in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He sees that God's hand is all over all the tragedy that's going on in his life. And he understood that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. So what is God's grace in the middle of Naomi's tragedy? Well, first, she's alive. Her husband and her sons, dead. So it's grace that she's even alive at this point. And then we see in 1 verse 6, there's food in Judah. The famine's over. That is grace, and Naomi's just blind to it. And then we see in verse 16 through 18, Ruth refuses to leave her. The gift of Ruth. Read that with me. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is incredible. Ruth, remember, she just heard that Naomi was bitter at God. Here's all she knows about Naomi's God at this point. That he brings a bunch of tragedy. That he's behind all of this stuff, behind Ruth's hearing, behind my husband dying. But Ruth chooses to worship God anyway. It's incredible. She chooses to leave her family, her homeland. She's most likely going to be a widow and childless for the rest of her life, as far as she knows. She's going to a brand new, unknown culture and land. She promises to never go home, even if Naomi dies. Another glimpse of grace we see here is that they arrived in Judah at the beginning of barley harvest. And most of us would just, glim- just kind of uh, skim right past that, but the very last verse of chapter 1, 
and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay, that means there's food. That means there's potential work for Ruth. And as we find out, she will find work there. That is God's grace. And we see, finally, Naomi, she's bitter. But finally, her blinders start to get lifted. So look at 2 verse 19. Chapter 2 verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Right, she had just gone out to find work and she got some work and she came home with food. So she's excited, right? She said, where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, so she's by chance, by chance, in quotes, gleaning in a relative's field. And Naomi responds by praising God. It's like the horse blinders were lifted from her and she, she saw God's gracious hand. It's almost like uh, if, you were, if you were in a stadium and you had a piece of paper and you're holding it up and it's supposed to make this grand design like this. Or no, who put that in there? Next, next one. Um, like this. Yeah, so... Um, I think that was for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, Chris. I, no, I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Sorry. We're, I digress. It's like if you were standing there, all right, Naomi's at a spot where she's standing there. And she's going through all this trial and your arms start to hurt. And you're like, are you kidding me? Okay. And then finally, they put up on the jumbotron the picture of what you're helping to create with your paper. You realize, oh, I get it. And in a much greater way, Naomi, at this point, realizes, oh, I get it. All of this tragedy, all of this trial, and now God has led us right here, right to one of our relatives, so our family name can continue. And little does she know, God's grace to her is even bigger than that. Her family name is going to continue all the way to Jesus, who will deliver us from all tragedies. So Ruth ends up having a child. I'm just going to skip over a little bit because you're going to get that in the next couple weeks. But long story short, Ruth ends up marrying this guy, Boaz, uh, who can help carry the family name on, which was a big deal to them in their culture. And she's sitting there. In verse 13, here's, here's Naomi sitting there with her grandchild. So Boaz took Ruth She became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Verse 15, 415. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Naomi's journal entry would probably be something like this at this point. God truly is for me and not against me. As I sit here rocking my grandson, Obed, what can I do but thank and praise God for his grace and kindness to me and my family? I missed it. In the middle of the worst possible circumstances in my life, I failed to embrace God's gracious sovereign hand at work. God definitely orchestrated all of it. 
If only I hadn't taken so long to trust that he wasn't throat punching me, but rather prodding me in the right direction for his glory and my good. God truly is for me and not against me. And we know that Naomi's actually even more blessed than she realized because Obed, as we see at the end of chapter 4, at the end of Ruth, is in the lineage of Jesus who brings deliverance from all tragedy. So let's bring this to 2017. When we go through suffering, when we have a miscarriage, when our mother dies, when our dad dies, when something horrible happens to us, how do we not waste our suffering? How do we not be like Naomi? Well, we learn from Naomi and from the book of Ruth, first, we need to acknowledge God's hand working in tragedy. Acknowledge God's hand working in tragedy. Naomi did this. It's not an accident. God actually put you there or allowed you to be there. And it's actually strangely comforting that God was there through the tragedy. Right? God didn't take a nap. Didn't, God didn't say, oh, you know what? Break time. I'm going to go get a Snickers in the break room. You know, because I know this, you know, I know this person's mom is about to die, so I'm just going to check out for a little bit, turn my back on that. Because, no, no, God's not like that at all. God didn't intend death to happen as a result of sin, as a result of our ugly sin. But God uses our ugly sin, uses our ugliness and brokenness to accomplish His purposes. It's strangely comforting to know that God doesn't take a break and doesn't take a nap no matter what happens. Number two, don't let bitterness blind you to God's active hand, unlike Naomi. It's natural. It's really natural after you acknowledge that God is in this, that God's hand is in this to be really angry at Him. A lot of the psalmists were that way. They, they show some some passion. They show some anger at God, but they don't stay there long. And we shouldn't stay there long either. We need to choose to trust. Yes, this is hard. Yes, I am angry. Yes, this hurts God, but I'm going to choose to trust you. Don't let bitterness blind you to God's active hand, which leads to three. Look for glimpses of God's grace in tragedy, unlike Naomi. Here's the reality. Nothing can take away the hope and the joy that you have in relationship with Jesus. I don't care what happens. I don't care if you become a quadriplegic. I don't care if your wife leaves you. I don't care what happens. Nothing can take away the hope and joy that comes from knowing that eternally you are His. And not because of anything you ever said or did, but everything He did. On the cross, you are His. Nothing can separate you from Him. We always have that glimpse of grace, no matter what goes on. Nothing can steal that from you. Nothing can rob joy from you. Nothing, nothing can make you bitter like Naomi. You can't undo Jesus' finished work on the cross. How can we practically go about seeing God's glimpses of grace in the middle of tragedy? Because anyone who's walked through tragedy knows it's really hard. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to see anything good that God is doing in the middle of that. How do you do that? God's people. 
reach out. Help have other, invite other people, invite friends to help you take the blinders off when you're in the middle of tragedy to see God's grace. Fight. Fight against your natural inclination to isolate in the middle of tragedy. I don't know how many stories I've heard of people in connection groups in our church who when they start walking through really hard stuff, what do they do? They isolate. You need community then more than ever. Because the devil's trying to lie to you. And probably doing a pretty good job in the middle of that. You need people to help speak truth into your life. You need people to help remind you of the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ in the middle of that. You need people. I know, I know that it's really hard to press into community when things are really difficult. But I'm telling you, make the decision now. If you're not suffering now, make the decision now. When I start to suffer, because you will, because we live in a messed up world, when I start to suffer, I'm not going to pull away from my friend and fellow believers. I'm actually going to press into that. And that's actually a great principle for suffering in general. Decide now how you're going to respond to suffering. Don't wait till it comes or you're just going to react. Decide now I'm going to trust God. Decide now I'm going to press into communities. Decide now that I'm going to, number four, embrace God's hand at work for His glory and for my good. Embrace God's hand at work. Author Robert Morgan said, be more concerned for God's glory than for your relief. That statement flies in the face of American Christians. We want to find relief. We want to find comfort. Get me out of this pain when God might actually want us to be in it. There are things that God cannot do in our souls, that God cannot do, cannot teach us unless we're going through something really difficult. Embrace God's hand at work. Be more concerned about God's glory than your own relief, than your own comfort in the middle of that. Someone in this room, part of our church, I I asked her permission. Deb Russell, I was scrolling through Facebook, lives this out, lived this out. I was scrolling through and I saw this. This is last Sunday. Um, She stepped uh, into a hole and twisted her ankle. And she said, doesn't that hole know I'm a busy mama and don't have time for this? Because sometimes our plans in life aren't what God has planned. Maybe he's telling me to slow down and lean into him. I'm not sure, but I'm choosing in the chaos to focus on him, his goodness. Do you see that? She's embracing it. She's saying, I don't know what you're doing, God, but maybe you're telling me to slow down. So instead of going to God and going, God, what are you doing? In the middle of tragedy, we need to go, God, what are you doing? You see the difference? We're asking God, what are, you, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? There's something in the middle of this that you can't show me in any other circumstance but this trial and this tragedy right now. And I want to become more like you, Jesus. My life's not about me. Help me take these blinders off. It's not about me. It's about you. It's about your glory, making you look great. I want to do that in the middle of this tragedy. Our response to God's hand at work in tragedy really matters. Johnny Erickson Tata is a gal who became a quadriplegic at age 17. Maybe many of you have heard of her. And now she's a Christian speaker and author and singer. She said this, 
However, if I were to nail down suffering's main purpose, I'd say it's the textbook that teaches me who I really am because I'm not the paragon of virtue I'd like to think I am. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. She says, the process is difficult, but affliction isn't a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within. I can't tell you how many nights I I have lain in bed, unable to move, stiff with pain, and have whispered near tears, Oh Jesus, I'm so happy, so very happy in you. God shares his joy on his terms only. And those terms call for us to suffer. In some measure, like his son, I'll gladly take it. Back in the 70s, my Bible study friend, Steve Estes, shared ten little words that set the course of my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Steve explained it in this way. Johnny, God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. God hated the torture, injustice, and treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury. Yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others. Like Joseph when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what he is now being what is now being done the saving of many lives Naomi was a poor example for us in the midst of suffering and tragedy Joseph Johnny Erickson Tata they're good examples Jesus is our perfect example in the middle of suffering he showed submissiveness he showed trusting in the bigger plan remember he's in the garden He's just agonizing. He's going, God, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die. Take this cup from me. I don't want to bear your wrath for sin. This is going to be horrible. This is going to be hard. I don't want to do this, God. But then what does he end with? He says, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus embraced suffering so that someday he could end all suffering because God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace in our lives, even in the middle of really hard things. And I pray that you would give us strength. Give people strength in here this morning. People that are going through really hard things to embrace what's going on in their lives. And say, God, what are you doing? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? I pray for us that aren't really suffering right now, that you would help us to choose today that I'm going to embrace it when it comes and I'm not going to isolate. I'm not going to become bitter. I'm going to choose to see your grace and your goodness shown through Jesus on the cross and in many other ways in my life. I'm not going to let bitterness overtake me. Thank you for your example, Jesus. You, we don't have to walk through suffering alone. You, walk, you, you not only walk through it with us, you've been there to a worse degree when you went to the cross. It's not our will, God but yours be done. Amen.